Lord, um, there are there are people in different places in this room, spiritually, emotionally, um, in their marriages, in their parenting. Um, some come here this morning just dry, just feeling as if you don't exist, feeling as if you're not here. Um, they come out of desperation, um, to, desiring to be encouraged to, to find hope. And I, and I pray that you would rain down on their desert and that you would bring fresh um, water to their souls. For those, Lord, who um, find themselves in pain and, and grieving, Lord, I ask that you would remind them that you, um, you are deeply acquainted with and sympathize with pain because you walked in our shoes and you bore our sin. And I pray that you would provide them comfort and strength this morning um, because they came, not just through the word, but also through the word in worship and song and prayer. Um, so, Lord, I just ask as a, um, as a fellow um, congregant, fellow follower of Christ on behalf of this church family, that you would meet each of us in the way that we need to be met. We know that your spirit is here. You are not absent. You are present. You are every bit as present now in your spirit as you were when the Son of God walked the earth. And so we just ask that you would make your presence deeply and powerfully known uh, through your truth and through our fellowship and through our praise. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as you may imagine, um, because of what I do, I get to talk to a lot of people about, about God, both uh, outside and inside the church. And um, you probably know the statistics. The vast majority of people in the United States do believe in, in God. Not necessarily um, all believe in the same God, but everybody, most everybody believes in some kind of a God. I've only met a couple atheists in my life. Most everybody else has some conception of who they believe God to be. It's interesting, as I've, as I've talked to people over the years, that there's really kind of two basic conceptions as to who God is, and they, they kind of polarized conceptions of, of who he is. Um, on the one side of the pole, there is this um, understanding of God that he's somewhat, and I was trying to figure out how best to say this, but kind of a, a soft, uh, fluffy, kind of a teddy bear kind of a person, um, embracing, open, accepting, warm, couldn't imagine him ever hurting anybody, much less sending anybody to hell, um, except maybe somebody who's an extremely evil individual, like somebody who, you know, caused the Holocaust or something like that. But by and large, he's very warm, accepting, he's tolerant of almost any kind of behavior and so forth. And that, that, is, uh, that is a conception that is out there, and it's probably the, the dominant one in, in our culture, is that God is a very accepting and accommodating uh, uh, God. And, and people who conceive of him that way... Um, for the most part, believe then that you can live as you choose and he'll accept you in the end. Um, and that, of course, leads to a certain type of moral laxity about life and about others. It's just a very, I don't know, warm and fuzzy understanding of God, which, by the way, um, is not the kind of God you want when evil is prevailing. The idea or conception of a soft, fluffy, teddy bear type of divinity when everything is breaking loose is, is not the kind of God you want. You want a God who's going to come down and rain down justice. But that's one conception that's out there, and that, I think, is uh, one of the dominant ones in our, in our culture at this time. Very warm and accepting, soft, fluffy, kind of the softer side of Sears. Then you have, over here on the other side, this other pole um, where people conceive of God, and this is more typical of those inside the church than outside, but that God is kind of this um, angry perfectionist. 
Kind of a, um, a disgruntled, merciless God with a gavel in his hand just waiting for somebody to screw up and just slam down that gavel. Kind of a, um, if you've seen Les Miserables, the Javert in, the, in, the, in that particular uh, musical um, is the long arm of merciless law. Um, and in the end, dies of despair because he can't comprehend mercy. Um, that there is that conception out there that God is this kind of merciless, angry perfectionist just waiting for you to mess up and, you know, he's going to take your house away if you mess up, he's going to take your kids away, or he's going to give you bad health. And so there's this, this deep sense of, of dread and fear of God because he's viewed as this angry perfectionist. Um, I believe the German reformer, uh, Martin Luther, had this view of God prior to really understanding what the gospel was like. Um, this is something that he wrote. Um, this is from his biographer, but it's, this is kind of the, the angry view or the view of an angry God that he had before he really understood the gospel through Galatians. He, he wrote this. He says, this appears uh, iniquitous, cruel, and intolerable in God in which um, very many have been offended in all ages. And who would not be? I myself more than once driven to the very abyss of despair so that I wished I had never been created. Love God? I hated him. Because his vision of God was, was uh, such a tyrannical view of an of a angry perfectionist just waiting to you know, pull the trigger of hell and say, go ahead, make my day, kind of a, 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 a God. Um, well, people will serve a God like that, but they will serve out of necessity and not out of love. Now, those are kind of two, might we call polar opposite views as to who God is, a soft, fluffy teddy bear, warmly accepting of all behavior and so forth on, on the one side. And on the other side, this kind of angry perfectionist who's waiting to just lightning bolt whoever uh, messes up. And uh, I believe, and many believe, and I believe the Bible reveals, and more importantly, the person of Jesus reveals a God who's very different. A God who could be described with a single word, and that is amazingly, I'm going to use two, I just lied, amazingly beautiful. The word was beautiful. Um, and you, you, you want to know what God is like, you have to open the New Testament and read about Jesus. I mean, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am what God is like. And that's true not only in the New Testament, it's true in the, in the Old Testament as well. We find a God who is patiently just and yet righteously gracious. A God who is patiently just, and yet a God who is righteously um, gracious. And we've seen that come to light in this book of of 1 Samuel. It's the same God who has revealed himself in the scriptures, Old and New Testament, the same God who reveals himself in Jesus. Uh, We have seen God's patient justice in this book, um, if you've been with us. Um, We've seen some rather hard-hearted, worthless people in the book. In particular, Eli's uh, two sons, Hophni and Phineas. And when I say worthless individuals, that's what the Bible said, it says about them. They were worthless men. They were blasphemers. They took advantage of God's people at the temple. They robbed them. They, um, they, they were uh, sexually promiscuous with the women who had come to worship. That's the kind of priests they were. They were hard-hearted in their sin. But it's interesting, as you, as you read the story, you realize that at the first infraction, God just didn't smoke them. You know, he just didn't d- dump down hail and, and brimstone, but, but we find that they were warned. And the text gives the sense that there was a period of time that passed. In other words, uh, judgment or wrath was patient. 
And, um, and then finally in chapter 4, they, they do meet their end in judgment on the, on the battlefields of Aphek. Um, but the point being that when you read about God's, um, you know, using the trigger or um, the gavel in the Bible, it's after times of patience and pleading. In fact, he's so patient sometimes that some of the biblical writers kept asking questions like, Lord, how long? Until you judge and until you def- uh, avenge. As if, as if from human vantage point, he's waiting too long. That's how patient he is. So he's a God of, of, of patient justice. Now, granted, when his wrath falls, it's deadly. But it is a patient justice and not after, after um, years and years and time of, of pleading. Even the book of Revelation, you have this constant pleading with the nations to repent. Give glory to God. Warning after warning after warning as if to say, I'm, I'm extending yet another hand, yet another hand, yet another hand. That's the picture that emerges of God's justice. Is it a patient justice? But on the other side, we also find that God is immensely gracious to the, to the sinful, um, failing, falling, stumbling, bumbling of his people. And, and that's what comes to light in this portion of this particular story in 1 Samuel, um, chapter 10, 17 through the end of chapter 11. Now, it's basically a two-part story, and I want to show you the heart of God on that side, on the gracious side with God's people, um, and in particular their sin. That's the, that's the heart um, that comes to light in this particular chapter, or chapter and a half. Now, there's two parts to it. One is the, the chapter 10 records what we might call the installation of Israel's very first king, King Saul. And the second part, um, it reveals or records his very first military victory. So the installation of him as king and his very first military victory. Now, those seem like two stories, but I'm dealing with them together because there's a key word that sews them together, and that is the word saved. It is a key word that links these two stories together. Now, you might think, can't you just get on with the application of it and not talk about the story? No, if there is no story, and if we don't talk about the text, then there's no ground for the application. So what I want to do is simply summarize the story. Um, I'll touch down on a couple of points, and then I want to afterwards reflect on what we as uh, people take away from this. What does it do, what does it teach our faith about the heart of, of who God is for us? So, story and then application. Um, the first part of the story, as I said, is about uh, Saul as um, the very first king of Israel. It's a significant moment in the, in the history of, of the Bible. Um, Israel's very first king. Now, this is his public installation. In the chapters prior to this, he was secretly anointed by the prophet Samuel. But here, he is publicly acknowledged to be king by the prophet in front of everybody. So chapter 10, verse 17, opens up with this grand meeting. This kind of national huddle is called by the prophet. And everybody shows up at this town called Mizpah. And there, they are going to hear the words of the prophet. And there is where the very first king will be installed. Now, what's interesting about this... um, this meeting is that it begins with a rather bold and profound confrontation. Now, most events like the coronation of a king or um, the swearing in of a president, we've seen that before, or, um, or a graduation commencement address, usually they're positive, there's a sense of decorum, and there is a sense of uh, etiquette. Only this one starts out with a rather blunt confrontation of Israel's sin. This is what the prophet says. This is the kind of the beginning of the coronation. He says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today, you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. It begins with this blunt confrontation of their sinfulness in rejecting God. And this confrontation um, establishes two things. One, God's faithfulness to save, and two, the sinfulness of God's people. I mean, he reminds them, and the verbs kind of say it all right here. It's, uh, I've underlined them for you. It's like, he looks into the past, and God says, basically, I've always been there for you. I've brought you up out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of Egyptians, and not just them, but the hand of all the kingdoms. In other words, I was always there when you looked to me to save. That's past. And then he goes on to acknowledge, and, and, and I save you, present tense, verse 19, who saves you from all your calamities and all your distresses. I am your Savior. I've always been there for you, taking care of you. Water in the desert, food in the desert, delivered you from the kings, from your oppressors. Whenever you looked to me in faith, I delivered. Even sometimes when they didn't look to him in faith, he delivered. But now you want a human king. And as I've mentioned on previous occasions, which deserves at least a summary here, is that um, what causes a person to gravitate towards something else to save you is that it's manageable and controllable. Um, to, to trust in a God that you can't see, that you can't control and can't manage because he's sovereign, is, it requires a tremendous amount of faith. It's much easier to, to trust in somebody you can see, touch, someone you can vote in and out of office. Of course, that's not the case in this political system, but, um, but it's easier to manage, which is why people oftentimes worship money. They wouldn't say they worship money, but because it's manageable, it's tangible, it's controllable. You can use it instantaneously to get what you want. Even if you don't have it, you can use a plastic credit card, which is why we worship it. It's, it's controllable. It gets us what we want. So they have, in effect, the sin is, God has always saved them, always been there. There's a track record of history, and yet they want something manageable and controllable. They want a human king. And in so doing, they have rejected the Lord. So they're, they're in sin. That's the first part. Now, you would expect at this particular moment, if there was ever a time for the gavel to fall and say, you know, I've had it with you guys. You've rejected me. You're done. You know? <laughs> I don't know why Dirty Harry just keeps coming to my mind. It's a bad, bad after effect of high school movies anyway, um, of, of, of just waiting for God to just hit the button. I'm done. You've sinned. You've rejected me. I reject you. What's interesting and surprising about this is, is, that, um, is that God accommodates. He accommodates. Samuel says, bring everybody forward. Gather before the Lord. And I probably would have been a little bit fearful. Is he going to strike us down? Is the earth going to open up? Is there going to be an earthquake? Is there going to be a typhoon? What is it going to be? I mean, God has done some pretty amazing things in the past. Instead, he accommodates. And God grants their request. We'll get to the why in a, in a moment. But this is what the text reads. It says, then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Um, that was the way of choosing. They were using Lot's. Um, he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites um, was taken by Lot, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran 
and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And the people shouted, long live the king, long live the king. He accommodates their request, and it's, it's, a, it's this system of lots, you know, clan by clan or tribe by tribe, clan by clan, family by family, taken by lots. And wouldn't you know it, in this what seems like a random chance way of doing things, it comes down to the very same person that um, Samuel anointed in the previous chapters. A confirmation this is God's choice. Only the surprising thing again is, is he's missing. He's missing. And uh, the text doesn't tell us that they really searched hard for him, but, but they inquired of the Lord, and the Lord says, hey, he's, he's hidden himself in the luggage bay of this town or wherever they kept the luggage, which is the first hint that Israel's first king was going to struggle with his fear, something that will unfold over time. You'll see his fear turn into paranoia, turn into jealousy, and in the end, end in despair. But it kind of gives you a little glimpse that this is a, a place where this particular king is going to be vulnerable. But notice the people see his size. Long live the king. There's none like him among all the people. Now, in one sense, you can say that there's, a, there's a kind of a, a, a divine poetic justice in this. The sinful request of the people was, we want a king like the nations. And in one sense, God gave them what they wanted. And it is going to unfold in some rather painful and tragic ways. A reminder, and this is also found in Scripture, that, that um, the sinful choices do carry with them consequences. And the fact that God loves us and is gracious to us does not deny the fact that those temporal sinful co- consequences do unfold in our lives. In one sense, the Lord is answering their request, and they're getting what they wanted. But in another sense, it's pretty clear that this is God's choice. Um, That's what the the, the prophet says. Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? So he's the Lord's choice. He's the Lord's choice. So you have a just a blunt confrontation of sin. You have God's accommodation to the people's request. He gives them the king. Um, who is outwardly impressive, but you get the sense that he has a fearful heart, so he's handsome, but in some sense heartless. The people are enamored by what they see, but not by what's on the inside. And again, that's a lesson for another day. Well, at the closing of this chapter, one final thing needs to be noted, and that is, um, while most of the people are saying, long live the king, long live the king, there are a few what the Bible calls worthless fellows who ask this question, how can this man save us? When God puts somebody on the throne by his choice, then um, he is not to be question. It would be a questioning of the Lord, not just the questioning of whether Saul can save us. But that's the question. Can this man save us? Important. That's that word. Can the king save us? Can the king save us? Well, that's kind of his installment. That's, that's the public um, crowning of Israel's first king, beginning with this confrontation of sin, God's accommod- gracious accommodation to give them what they ask for, and then this final question, can the king save us? And the second half of the story answers that question, can he save us? 
Because in chapter 11, what opens up is everybody kind of goes home from this big coronation party and, and Saul goes back to the family farm and apparently he's plowing and so forth and, and a crisis erupts in, in eastern Israel or what is eastern Israel, um, modern land of Jordan today, in a town called Jabesh Gilead. And I'm going to summarize most of this to keep it short because I want to be able to reflect on it. Um, Another of Israel's enemies, they had a bunch, just like they do today. In the west, it was the Philistines. In the east, Ammonites and Moabites and so forth. Um, Well, one of their enemies in the east was the Ammonites. And um, this evil, arrogant leader of the Ammonites decides he's going to lay siege to one of the Israelite cities by the name of uh, Jabesh Gilead. He lays siege to it, and the people ask for a treaty. And they, if you read the text, they offer servitude. They, they, they basically say to this evil enemy, we will serve you. And the idea is if you will leave us alone, we will become your slaves. Well, this evil king or general by the name of Nahash um, agrees with one condition. And the condition is that I will gouge out all of your right eyes. Now, at this point, I'm thinking, I am so grateful that I did not live back in that time. But that's exactly what he wants. Um, On this condition, I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes. And this will bring, and thus will bring disgrace on, on all Israel. Now, for me personally, the choice would be death, not eye gouging, especially with, uh, without 21st century modern medicine to deal with the after effects. But that's the condition. So the townspeople talk and they, they offer a, a counter proposal. Listen, give us seven days respite and we'll send word to our brothers and sisters, the Israelites, to see if someone will save us. That's what it says. Elders of Jabesh said to Nahash, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. Now the, the king, Nahash, or General Nahash, he, um, he accommodates. He says, sure. Now I don't know what would possess a guy who's laying siege to a city to give somebody seven days opportunity to call for reinforcements. Unless you're either stupid or you're arrogant. In this case, probably a little bit of both. Those are not mutually exclusive. Usually they're with each other. Stupidity and arrogance go together. He says, yeah, go ahead. I'll give you seven days. Almost in a sense, bring them all here. I'll kick them all. That's that's Nahash's. So word goes out. To make a long story short, they send out these messengers, and eventually word gets to this this crown prince, Saul, who's out in in the fields, And when he hears the report of what is happening to the people of Israel, now it's his responsibility to act as king. The question is, what is he going to do? Remember the question, can this man save us? And the text tells us here that the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Something happens to Saul when the Spirit of God rushes upon him that enables him to deal with the enemy. And so he takes these oxen that are, that are pulling his plow and he cuts them into pieces. And he sends pieces of, of, of meat and flesh throughout all of Israel. And he says, whoever doesn't gather to fight, your oxen are going to become like this. Now, these days we just email. These, those days you send, you know, um, compelling ideas and visual bloody messes to 
teach people, you better, better come. And the text tells us that the dread of the Lord fell upon the people of Israel. It wasn't the fear of Saul. It was the dread of the Lord. So the Spirit of God moves upon a king. The fear of God moves upon the people. And we're told in the text that 330,000 soldiers rally. I mean, Nahash is over there going, yeah, bring the best you got. Meanwhile, God moving through this king, moving through the dread of the people of Israel, rising up 300,000 soldiers, Saul gathers these men into three companies and completely decimates the army. Army doesn't even, the Bible really doesn't spend time talking about what exactly happened, other than to summarize the battle by saying that no two enemy remained together. You wouldn't find two guys together. That's how completely scattered and destroyed they were. And after this military victory in which this first king was moved upon by God and, and God moved in the, in the, in the nation, they, they come back to a central place and they reaffirm him as king. And this is what Saul says um, in the final portion of chapter 11. Um, I guess I skipped a part. He says, today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. He acknowledges that it was the Lord who worked salvation there's the word again saved so here you have this i mean this is a really a great start for a king a king that you know if you hadn't read the rest of 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 first and second samuel or first samuel you would you would um you would think wow he's a he's a he's a really good king um but if you put the pieces together you realize that this calling of this first king and his victory it begins with a confrontation of sin a sin that basically says i've always been the one to save you and now you're asking for a king to save you so he gives them what they want and then ironically enough in kind of a surprising upset god saves the people who have sinned through the king they requested I, as I said, I, I find it a surprising story. It's, it's kind of difficult to make sense of. In one sense, you expect the people to get judgment, and instead they get salvation. And that God uses this, this, this fearful giant of a king when the Spirit of God rushes upon him to bring deliverance and victory. So, so what, do we, what, what do we take away from this then? Like this story of sin, God's gracious accommodation, and yet showing that even through this accommodation, God brings salvation through this man named Saul. Let me start with the individual and then get to the big. One of the things that strikes me... (laughs) Go back. One of the things that strikes me, because you're going to get... I I was supposed to put those one at a time, like, then the next one comes up, but now you see all three of them. Then you're going to totally get distracted. So I'm just going to hide them from you and bring them back. Um, Um, one of the things, you just look at Saul and you realize, here's this fearful man, but when the spirit of the living God comes upon him, then he, his, his, whatever level of fear he is, he is vulnerable to, the fear flees. And the presence of God enables him to be the man that God has called him and placed him to be, namely the deliverer of Israel. And that brings up a, a, a truth found throughout Scripture, and that is that, that we, we, we find strength and power for God's calling in our lives only as we trust in His abiding presence with us, namely His Holy Spirit. 
Now, there are differences between the Old and New Testament. I get it. But the fact that the Spirit is necessary to, 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 to grant us victory in life over the areas that he's called us to live, and whatever that victory looks like, is because he's with us. And I think many of us, like, like Saul, I find myself actually um, somewhat sympathetic to him. I have not met a person yet that has not had fear of some kind, a fear of what people think, fear of failure. Um, fear of being judged. Fear of what's going to happen to your kids. I mean, there's just we all can connect with this fear. And what's the, what's, the, what's the answer to the fears that we all feel, much like Saul felt? And the answer isn't to, you know, talk yourself up. Don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, because you know that doesn't work. But rather, if, if Saul could have remembered this moment where, you know, the Spirit of God was there for me, and I trust that God will be with me, I think his story probably would have turned out differently. Now, I have a fear. One of the fears that I have is that I'm going to screw up my kids. That's a very real fear for me, because I'm not perfect, and my kids will tell you I'm not perfect. But then the Lord reminds me, I'm with you. It's not dependent upon you to make your kids right. I'm with you, and you need to trust that I'm with you and live in that reality. And, and I'll take care of it. Just, just trust me and, and do your best to be faithful. That's, that's how he wants us to live. And one of the things I think that comes to light is here's this fearful man. The Spirit of God comes upon him, and, and he carries out what God wants him to do. And the same is true for you. The same is true for me. And to live in that moment by moment, and that's the difficult part. You know, I had the opportunity. It was the privilege of sharing my faith with a lady a week and a half ago. And um, I'm, I'm in a room with her, and I'm, and I'm getting ready to tell her about the faith. And in walks somebody else who completely distracts the situation. And I thought to myself, Lord, I'm here on your work. And, and in this moment, it's one of the little moments of victories in my life, because it's not always like this. I just pray, Lord, remove that lady, this person who has distracted the conversation. And do you know, in that moment, she got up and she left. I'm like, thank you. And, um, and just watching as if you live moment by moment with the realization and the dependence that the Lord God is with you, if you're doing his work and you're praying and you're connected with him, he's with you and there's confidence and fear dissipates. That's one lesson. That's the first one. Okay, now second one. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's my bad. I should have fixed this. Second one. Um, and this is a, a, a broader one, and, and, and th this, I hope, will give you a sense of security, is, is the realization that God was gracious to his people despite his people. I mean, the whole scenario begins with sin and rejection, and yet God delivers. They deserved condemnation, but what they got was deliverance and grace. And it, again, reminds us of the fact that when God covenants himself to a people, when he, when, he, when he bonds himself to a people, when he promises that he's going to do certain things, when he chooses um, a people as a treasured possession saying, you are mine and I am yours, 
that he is all in to that relationship. And he therefore never abandons his work. He may purge it, he may purify it, he may punish the disbelieving portions of it. But he never abandons his people. Even in the workings of difficult times, he is graciously working on their behalf and he never lets them go. This is just another one of those potent examples in the Bible of God being gracious when people should have received judgment. Because that's exactly what he did. They reject him, and he works through a king to deliver the people. There's just one word for that. And that's, 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 that's God's grace. And the same holds true even more so for us as God's new, te- new covenant people. Um, in Christ, God bound himself to us, saying, you are my bride, and I am your groom. And I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will love you when you are ugly. I will love you when you have fallen. I will love you when you have skinned your knees. I will love you when you have the worst case of bad breath I've ever smelled. That's the passion and the love that Christ has for his church, that God has for his people. And when, you know, we as uh, believers begin to get that, it it doesn't create in us a license to go on and sin more. It it actually turns our hearts back to the Lord. That's what, what God's kindness does is it produces repentance. Like, you love me that much? That you would come after me? That you would, even though I sinned and rejected you, you still loved me? Absolutely. You know, I had this, um, I had this friend in the service, and this is what my earliest first encounter with adultery I had ever experienced. I'm a pretty sheltered kid. And um, his name was Ron. And um, there were three, three believers in my unit. And, um, and I watched this brother, Ron, he confessed to me that he didn't confess. He just told me, shared with me. He says, my wife's cheating on me. And, um, and I said, well, with who? And he says, with so-and-so. And he also was our unit. And he was a friend. So here was this brother of mine who believed in Jesus who was betrayed on the one side by his wife and by a close friend on the other side who he had been with for years. Um, Totally and completely betrayed. I remember sitting at his kitchen table um, across from him as he just wept uncontrollably the day she left to go be with this other guy. And... um, I just, I didn't know what to say. I mean, I, I haven't experienced it. I couldn't, you know, I didn't have any grand advice. I didn't have any advice. I, I just, just sat there and prayed for him. And, and um, what was really intriguing to me about how that whole thing played out was that a lot of friends gave him advice, divorce your wife. And you know what? He had every right to. And most would. But he didn't, and he refused. Um, I watched him wait and pray and grieve. Wait, pay, grieve, pray, grieve. Go through the anger process. Wait, pray, grieve. And you know what? I don't forget how long it, it went. Um, I think it was a matter of a year and a half, almost two years. And he kept waiting, praying, and eventually, when she came to the end of herself, almost like the prodigal son, she came back. And she renewed her love and commitment to him, and they went on to have children. And I, I, you know, I still remember that to this day, because 
If a fallen sinful human man can have that kind of enduring, gracious, merciful love for a lost wife, how much more love and how much more enduring, gracious love does God have for us who stumble, bumble, you know, fail? Like I said, when you get that, it breaks your heart. It creates a humble joy in you that someone would love you that much. And that is how much God loves his bride. That is how much he loves you and, and me. And, and if, in the off chance, that creates a sense of license to go on and sin more, then you don't get it. But it is the sense that God loves us that much that serves as the bedrock of our salvation. I mean, where do I go when I screw up? Where do you go when you screw up? Do you go to the, the whipping station and pull out a whip and try and somehow make your sin right by, by telling yourself you're bad and you're evil and you got to feel bad for a period of time before you feel like he loves you again? Because I'll tell you what, that's not right. He loves us with a gracious love and says, you know, you can't work that way back. You, you just, you got to trust and embrace the fact that I loved you before you were ever saved. And you're secure in that love. That's, that's where we go to every time. That's where God's people have to go to. Be merciful to me, O Lord, according to your steadfast love. So that's lesson number two. And the last one, I'll leave up. (laughs) That it shows God's intentions to save his people through a king. I have asked myself, why does God accommodate? A lot of times he doesn't accommodate. When people sin, he's like, you know, like in the ark, he didn't accommodate. They take the ark out into the battlefield, and he's like, go by yourself, and they all get destroyed. But in this case, they ask for a king, and God gives them a king, and then he saves them through a king, the very first king. And I think one of the answers to that question, why did he accommodate, was it was in his purposes to bring salvation through kingship to begin with. Because a prophet, by and large, does not save people. It reveals the heart of God. But in this particular story, and in the stories that follow, one of the functions of a king is to deliver and save his people. And here, Saul touches off a stream, a stream of kingship that will turn into a river that will lead us to the ocean of the king that saves. And Saul is the very first one to point us in that direction, and I believe that's why God accommodated, because he was... He was intending on going that direction anyway, and he used the sinful choices of his people to get there. But Jesus is, is in one sense, similar to, but also different from Saul. Uh, Saul was impressive in stature, and he was wealthy. The final king um, was not impressive in stature, nor was he wealthy. Born in a feeding trough to peasant mother and father, Um, We're told that he had no beauty that we should look at him. And yet in his heart, unlike Saul, it was not a heart of fear, but a heart of love and a heart of passion and a heart of faith so that he was willing to face what no man, no king could ever face. And that is a battle in which he would not win, but he would lose by dying on the battlefield of the cross. And in so doing, to save his people from their sins. 
So in many ways, he's so different than Saul. Maybe not outwardly oppressive. He was um, acquainted with grief and sorrow and lowly, and yet in him was the raging heart of God himself. And yet, similar to Saul in the sense that God's design was to save people, his people, and to save people through a king. Not just a king, and not just a salvation, but the salvation of the world through his king, Jesus Christ, God's heart in human flesh, the king of kings, who would raise and reign, and the only one who can mend the broken pieces of life, the only one who can resurrect our fallen loved ones and who can recreate these decaying, dying bodies that we're living in, and the only one who can take the shattered earth and put it back together again and rule and reign in love and peace. And it's in this king that we hope. And King Saul just began the stream that leads us to the king of kings and lord of lords before whom we bow, before whom we worship, and in whom we trust, not only to fight our battles today, but he already won the war back then and he will win the war in the future. That was God's intention from the beginning. And he uses this curve in the road to take us right right straight to Jesus. And that, of course, brings us to the table. I'm hoping more than anything this morning that, um, that you sense the enormity of God's grace and love and how he works through history, through, through difficulties and even sinful choices, but he never lets his people go. And that you'll come and you'll partake of the bread and the cup and you'll be reminded that this is the king's blood and this is the king's bread, his body. Uh, that was poured out for us. And the reason he told us to keep taking it is because we'd easily forget that's on the basis of what he did at the cross and that alone that serves as the foundation of God's love and acceptance of us. We come this morning, if you're a believer, as an accepted child of God, fully and completely forgiven. And I I simply ask, do you believe that? Because that's what the Lord has done for us. And we should come to this table with a sense of humble but joyful freedom of knowing that Jesus, my king, king of kings, paid my ransom, and he's going to fix my world. As I pray, if I could ask those uh, small group members to come up, they're going to be serving us this morning, and if you're new with us, you can just follow the crowd. If you're a follower of Christ, that's what this is about, um, then you're, you're welcome to come, but um, um, come when the music's playing, and, and you can partake of it however you want at your chair or some people like to kneel on the stairs and just make this a time where you commune with Jesus and and know that he's your king who loved you and gave his life for you and he's coming again for you so as I pray if if I could have the servers come forward and then let's worship the Lord through through this uh, supper Lord we are um, we are all weak people subject to our own fears um, And we certainly don't want to make the mistake of resting in our own talents, our own strength, our own um, intelligence. We want to rest completely and firmly in the hand of Christ and the mercy and the grace of Christ, who is our king. Um, We have no more beautiful king than that, um, because beautiful does describe you as one who judges patiently, but one who is so righteously gracious to us, never to let your people go 
but always to pursue and bring back. And we just come to you and ask, please minister to your people in the way they need to be ministered to. Strengthen, give new, new uh, fresh water to souls this morning as we partake. In the name of Jesus, our high king and priest, we pray. 